Do babies have a natural instinct to sleep? Getting a better understanding of what my partner needed and what my children really needed, that's made a huge difference. Yes, yeah. otherwise I can get a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, I think lots of parents can relate to yeah. that. You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt. One of the most challenging things as a parent is understanding and helping your child with their emotions. At least that's how I feel. When my four-year-old son has a monumental meltdown because his sister has sat in a certain spot on the lounge, or my daughter, who's six, breaks down because she has to get out of the bath, I just struggle. And there are moments like this every minute of the day. And yet, they are also some of the most profound moments where both our kids and we as adults can learn about self-regulation. Dr. Stuart Shanker is a research professor emeritus of philosophy and psychology and founder of the Self-Regulation Institute. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And it was a wonderful story that you just told. (laughs) Oh, if it was only just a story, that would be nice. Um, How do you define self-regulation? Well, um, we use the original scientific definition, and that is simply how we manage stress. Uh, And sometimes kids manage stress in ways that really lead to more problems down the road. And what we want to teach them is how to manage stresses in their lives so that they don't have a meltdown when they're sitting on the couch. Can most adults self-regulate well in your experience? Yes. In fact, uh, all of the work that we do really does start with the adult. Uh, It turns out it's almost impossible for us to teach a child how to self-regulate in a healthy way unless we ourselves are in that sort of calm, balanced state. You developed a five-step method of teaching self-regulation. I have a few questions relating to some of the steps, if we could go through them. Your first step is to reframe, that is to understand the difference between misbehavior and stress behavior. Are you saying that all misbehavior has come about because of some stressor and and that perhaps we should not be looking at at our children as misbehaving? Um, Really, the difference is this. In a case of misbehavior, it means the child could have acted differently. They could have chosen differently. And uh, it means that they could have told the truth or they could have stopped themselves. In stress behavior, it's a very different kind of behavior. It comes from systems deep inside the brain. And in this case, the child isn't choosing how they're acting and really can't stop themselves like your little guy on the couch. So um, I think I struggle with that because sometimes, you know, uh, for example, I can see my daughter do something wrong. Um, Let's say she hits her brother and then I get cross at her and then she has a a tantrum or a meltdown and says it wasn't on purpose. And I can see when I look at her, this wave of shame that she's done the wrong thing. And I'm caught because in one hand, I'm like, I need to... Well, not discipline. I need to teach her that that wasn't the right thing to do. She needs to know it wasn't the right right thing to do. But I, I don't want to shame her any more than she's already feeling. I think that's just a wonderful example. So uh, we're in a fortunate position where there are, in fact, all kinds of signs of when it's a stress behavior. Uh, and when we learn these signs, it really does influence how we respond to our child. Uh, so, for example, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Their voice changes in stress behavior. It goes up a little bit. Um, It becomes a little bit 
uh, faster and a little shrill. Their eyes change, their facial complexion changes, and so on. So when we learn these signs of stress behavior, what happens is uh, we instantly see that she didn't mean to, she, she really didn't want to do this. And this has a sort of, um, it, it's like hitting a pause button on how we respond. Now, uh, we really do need her to learn. You don't hit your little brother, you know, whatever. But it turns out that if we can bring our child into that sort of calm state, they learn that lesson so much faster and so much better. And that's what we're after, right? That's why it's so important for us to learn how to uh, distinguish between stress behavior and misbehavior so that we're in that state where we can teach them the things that they need to learn. So would I be correct in saying that misbehavior is almost cold-blooded and calm? It's when they've got that cheeky smile on their face and they've made that choice? I mean, look, (laughs) one thing we've learned is um, every child is going to misbehave. Every child's going to test the limits. And when that happens, you know, they have to learn that there are consequences and you do have to pay the price. The problem is that if it's stress behavior, if we punish, if we yell, if we are agitated, um, they don't actually learn that lesson that they needed to learn. So it becomes, uh, I mean, we are fascinated when we look, uh, especially at children that are having a lot of trouble, kids that are having lots of meltdowns or meltdowns or lots of aggressive behavior. It turns out that they have way too much stress uh, that they're carrying around. And that puts them into a state, into a physiological state, where these sorts of meltdowns or whatever are much more likely to occur. So when we work on self-regulation, what we're really trying to do is prevent them from getting into that state where they're more likely to have these problems and then teaching them how to do it for themselves. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm speaking with Dr. Stuart Shanker. He's the founder of the Self-Regulation Institute, and we are talking about self-regulation. We only got to step one, because, uh, which is re- to reframe, because it's, it's such an interesting topic. Yep. Your second step, Stuart, is to recognize. What do you mean by that? Well, it turns out that um, we, as a, as a society, have a very sort of superficial understanding of what stress is. Uh, and a stress, again, uh, for scientists, is anything that requires the brain to burn energy in order to sort of stay functioning. And what we are seeing today is a generation of children, and it's happening very, very young, really from before birth that are overstressed. Now, our problem is, what are these stressors? How can you talk about uh, a one-year-old being overstressed or a three-year-old? And what we do is we spend a lot of, we've, we've spent a lot of time looking at the hidden stressors that children are coping with today. And that leads us to our third step, which is once we begin to understand what these stresses are, and some of them are very subtle, uh, then we can start to reduce those stresses. So my next question is, what, what are the stresses that you have noticed around children? Um, and I, I know that you talk about the difference between positive and negative stress. Yeah. So children need stress. Um, we all need stress. Stress wakes up the brain. Stress, uh, it's what we call a positive arousal. Uh, and 
The problem is if there's too much stress. And so there are things that we do with our children that are stresses that are really good for them, like exercise is a stress. Anybody who goes to the gym knows that. (laughs) But it's a good stress, right? Mm -hmm. And um, now the problems that we're looking at today, I'll give you just one example, all right? Uh, Sugar is a stress. And what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is that if there's too much sugar in the bloodstream, the child has to start burning an awful lot of energy to get rid of that extra sugar, to bring it down to a safe level. And we've seen this extraordinary shift in in children today where they've stopped drinking water or milk and are now drinking sweetened fruit drinks or or soda pop. What's fascinating about this is that they can be sound asleep but their brain is working overtime to get rid of this extra glucose that's in the bloodstream. Would you say that uh, another stress that many children face today is the fact that a lot of families now have both parents working and there's less time? I would put it this way. I think you're onto something. I think that what you're really saying is, are we an overstressed society? And the answer is yes. And it's not simply that um, we all have to work. In fact, what we find in our clinic is families are lucky if it's only one job that each parent has to do. But it's other things. Getting to work has become stressful. Work itself seems to have become much more stressful, uh, the demands on us. Plus, there's all the things happening in our society. Uh, Just before I uh, got on this call, I made the mistake of reading today's news. (laughs) So, so all of that does filter down. Uh, if we're overstressed, then to come back to your very first point, it makes it harder for us to be in that calm state where we can teach them how to become calm. And, and this possibly leads to the fourth step, which is to reflect. Yeah, and now here's the key um, for every mum and dad. Um, once the child has had that meltdown, so the little guy's, you know, he's on the couch, he stole his spot, he's had his meltdown. In that, at that point, really, we, we want to just soothe, bring him back down, and then we can uh, do our teaching when he's receptive and responsive. But when we look at this in terms of how the brain works, what we find is there's what we call an inverted V-curve. And what that means is a child's getting more and more stress and then hits the top of the V and then crashes. Mm-hmm. What we want them to learn is not one what to do once they've crashed, because that's very hard for anyone. They need to learn to recognize the signs of when they're getting close to the peak. That's when they need to self-regulate. That's when they need to prevent themselves from, uh, you know, tipping over past the peak, we call it. Does that make sense? It does, but I'm trying to work out how you put that into language for a four-year-old. So you don't, and that's a great question, too, because remember, we're talking about little guys. This is, these are abstract concepts. And, um, you know, what a lot of parents will try to do is find some way of explaining this. But the way children learn this is through their body. They learn it by experiencing it. So if we, we have to be the ones that see that uh, they are approaching their peak, we have to be the ones that down-regulate them, calm them down. And by doing this, what that four-year-old is doing is they are learning it's called tacit learning. It means that their body and their brain 
are registering this lesson so that when they become old enough to uh, have, uh, enable us to have these conversations, they have that sort of experiential base where these aren't just words. They can connect this with what they felt inside their body. And in that way, should we be talk, not explaining things, but saying to them, you know, I can, recognizing that they're upset and saying, you know, they might feel angry or are we articulating their emotions in that moment? I love it, actually. And uh, I love the way you just said it now because your whole tone of voice changed as you started to say this. So I heard mummy talking. (laughs) And so what happened was you became very gentle and so whether or not the child understands the actual words that you're saying, what they do understand are the tones, the love, the safety, the security. That's what comes through. So um, what we talk about when we work with uh, children, essentially zero to, let's say, five or six, is uh, what they are processing isn't so much the words that you use, but they're processing your body language. They're, process- they're called affect cues. It's your tone of voice, the look in your, on your face, in your eyes. That's what they're listening to. And they hear it, boy. Uh, and I guess the final step you have is respond, restore, and recover. What does that mean? <laughs> well, the secret here is this. Every single child is different. And so if you think that there's one way that is going to suit... I, I've got two children, a boy and a girl. So my son... He, uh, re- his recovery um, uh, practice was he would shoot hockey pucks at the garage door. <laughs> Not so good for mom, but really good for him. Yes. His little sister, I live on an island, so his little sister, what she would do is fish. And, and I don't know that she ever caught anything, but she would grab a rod when she was agitated. So each child, lear- you have to help the child learn what is genuinely restorative for them. But there's one, uh, there's one sort of qualification here. The little buggers change on you all the time. <laughs> yes. So you can have something that's been working great uh, and then stops, and now we have to find the next thing and the next thing. Um, but if they you know, have gone through this sort of internal learning process, they will start to look for it themselves. My, little, my daughter now has uh, what she's become is a spray painter. She's 14 now. So what she, what's driving this is the embodied sense of what it feels like to be calm. And what we see is a generation of children that do not know what calmness feels like. And that's what we're, gain, that's what we're looking for. We want them to know what it is like to be calm, and then they'll find out for themselves what works. So fascinating, Stuart. I could talk to you all day. Thank it's you fine. so much for your time today. Okay, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. That was Dr. Stuart Shankar. He's the founder of the Self-Regulation Institute. You've been listening to Kindling Conversation. If you enjoyed it, there's plenty more where that came from. Find other stories and interviews at our website. Just head to kindling.com.au.